Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us... Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals? That are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G. As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping stuff it gets very gory in the basement and it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the capital insurrection but it didn't stop there every week on conspirituality podcast we track the overlaps between new age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults new year's eve 1958 in havana cuba things aren't looking so great for fulgencio batista the country's military dictator it's been a rough year, and the rebels trying to overthrow him, led by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, are getting closer and closer every day. After a massive military defeat over the summer, he holds a fake election in November to try to salvage his regime. This was it, though, for the U.S., who had backed Batista, as the U.S. ambassador to Cuba tells him that not only would the U.S. not recognize this new government, but that he's clearly lost control over the country and it's time to retire. Batista gathers a rumored $300 million and decides to flee in the early morning hours of the next day, January 1st, 1959. Castro and company are about to take control. And the U.S. government are not the only ones caught off guard. There's another powerful U.S. institution that are very concerned to see how things are going to shape out. And that's the American Mafia families. The Godfather Part 2 wasn't a documentary, but there's a lot of accuracy there. See, a mafia syndicate made up of some of the biggest names in American mafia history have heavily invested in Cuba during Batista's reign. They have a plethora of hotels, casinos, and other businesses, including the narcotics trade, that have been printing money for the mob for years. But now, their cash cow is at stake, and it's up to the mob's point man in Cuba, Florida mob boss Santo Traficante Jr., to make sure that everything is all right and the mafia will stay making money. Traficante is mafia royalty. His father, Santo Traficante Sr., had been a powerful crime boss that ran things in Tampa, Florida for decades, but also recognized that there was huge potential money-making opportunities in Cuba. He'd actually sent his son down to Havana in the 40s to suss things out and set up a mafia-run casino. Junior had taken over the Tampa Bay Mafia leadership in the 50s, 
also making deals with heavyweight New York mobsters and on the national front. They called him the Silent Dawn, and you know how it is, like the Gene Lasagna. He had things running smooth in Cuba for a minute, and he's been playing both sides, supporting Batista, but also supporting the revolutionaries like any good politician. But Castro has other ideas. He's no fan of the casinos, the luxury hotels, and everything else that goes with it. Everything is about to go very wrong for the mafia's Cuban enterprise. In fact, things go so wrong that Santo Traficante Jr. soon finds himself in a different type of alliance. It includes other organized crime figures, but also the CIA, and has one shared goal, assassinate Fidel Castro. This is the Underworld Podcast. Dale. Dale. Welcome back to another episode of the Underworld Podcast, a radio program where two journalists, myself, Danny Gold, and Sean Williams, take you on a guided tour of scumbags, dope dealers, and wise guys around the world, all while teaching valuable lessons about life, love, and everything in between. Sean is actually joining us from Port Moresby, right? Papua New Guinea, somewhere with a legendary bad gang problem that uh, most people cannot find on a map. And Sean, I think a question a lot of our listeners want to know is... What's it like to still believe that long-form print journalism is a viable career option? But also, what's up in Papua New Guinea? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, okay, the op- the optimistic side. I don't know. I, I'm going to skip the journalism part. But uh, yeah, Moresby, wow. Uh, what a hellscape. It's like basically taken over by gangs. I think it's like pretty similar to what Port-au-Prince is at the moment in Haiti as well, uh, which there's been a bunch of really cool stories about of late. Um, but I was actually on an island like an hour and a half away from here even a place called Bougainville which is probably going to be the world's next independent nation uh and there I guess I can talk about it now because I've been out there I was wondering I worried about him like getting nervous but uh I basically met a guy who is a combination con man rebel uh cult leader and a self-styled king he's like kind of the Colonel Kurtz of Bougainville but uh yeah, uh, when I saw him, he was wearing a red coat and he had a puka shell uh, headdress that said King uh, in shells. So uh, it was pretty, pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, I don't know what I make of this trip. It's been a really weird one. Uh, I've read a lot and I've sat around looking at palm trees. So uh, I guess that's nice, right? Yeah, it sounds sounds great. At least you're you're getting paid for it. But we yeah. are also getting paid here. So as always, bonus episodes or just support us at patreon.com slash Podcast. There's also YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, whatever else. Like, subscribe, comment, share, all that stuff. The uh, current contract for my day job is uh, is up soon. So, you know, if you guys want to chip in another 10 <laughs> or 20K, that would really help us out. But yeah. But yes, Santo Traficante Jr., great name, great mobster. It's American, which we usually stay away from. But this story combines three things that everyone loves, which is Havana in the 1950s, just wild CIA stories and Tampa, Florida, which, you know, Ybor City has almost killed us once again. Sean, aren't you banned from like every single strip club in Tampa? Oh, that's Pensacola, but I did do a, I did do a little trip to Tampa one time. I had a really nice vegan breakfast, actually. Is that hard-boiled enough for the uh, for the show? Or maybe I, I've got to say I shot someone at a club. I don't know. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I've been working on a screenplay that kind of touches on this stuff for like two, three years now, uh, which is definitely going to get made and make me rich. But um, <laughs> so I'm kind of keen to see what we've got coming up because uh, yeah, loads of this stuff is kind of wrapped up in what happened subsequently in the Golden Triangle, weirdly in Laos and Vietnam. So um, yeah, this is like fascinating stuff. I should add. I can hear like birds of paradise, like fly, or bird of paradises. I don't know, flying outside the uh, hotel window. So if you guys hear anything, it's because this hotel has like weirdly got an aviary on site, which is pretty cool, but uh, not great for podcasting. So I'll shoot them all after the, the uh, record. But uh. yeah, thanks, Bourdain. Um <laughs> I guess that's a story for for another day. But actually, I hear good things about Tampa. I don't think I've ever been. Uh, and this story begins in 1901. When Traficante's father, Santo Traficante Sr., is 14 years old and he comes from where else? Sicily, Italy, to America to live. The Traficantes, they settle in Tampa of all places. Tampa is a one-horse city at the time, just very underdeveloped, swampy, young city, you know, kind of like, I guess, all of Florida back then, right? I don't think Miami was much in the, in the um, early 1900s, but for our international audience, Tampa is on the west coast of Florida. It's like four hours up from Miami. Uh, I don't think it's quite as rednecky as when you get further north in Florida or like, you know, further along that coast or in the central area of it. But like I said, I'm kind of making fun of it, but I think everyone I know says it's a really good time and it is actually famous uh, for the strip clubs from what I understand. Santo meets a young lady in the uh, newly burgeoning Italian community of Tampa and he marries her and she's the daughter of a local Tampa drug dealer and this introduces him into the Tampa underworlds. And Tampa, unlike New York back then, it's not super established in terms of, you know, the crime community. It's an up-and-coming town for organized crime. It's wide open and ambitious mobsters. They could set up shop anywhere, which is typically called, like, an open city. Vegas was like that, too. Uh, because of that, there's sort of a power vacuum, and it leads to a pretty violent situation, which one magazine even labeling Tampa as the hellhole of the Gulf Coast at the time. So our man Santo, he opens up shop. He starts the sort of small-scale Spanish-style lottery called the Bolita. I went into this in depth, I think, in the episode we did on the Cuban mafia uh, up in New York. And actually in Miami, too, it was called The Corporation. I was way back. That might have been like even a year or two ago. It's a good episode, though. But I think I also talked about how my neighbors still kind of run numbers out of the bodega. They still do the Bolita. But it was like a billion-dollar industry, billions of dollars of industry all in the U.S. back then. Without getting too far into it, it's an illegal lottery, basically. Uh, it's a lot of fun if you get bored with falling one leg short on your parlays every single weekend, every goddamn time. Oh, wow. You really lost me. Is that like uh, going to Mecca Bingo Hall or something? I'm going to assume yes. I don't know what that reference is, but uh, <laughs> is what? Is is Bolita like that? It's like a lot. It's like a lottery. Is Bolita? It's, yeah. It's not like, it's not, it's basically not, you know, it's, it's the same thing as a lottery. Just one run out of bodegas and like storefronts and, and cool. done illegally. But yeah. Um, Traficante's successful operation impresses the most powerful Italian mobster in the city, this guy Ignacio Antonori, who is a massive drug trafficker. And Antonori invites the young Traficante to join his crime family, and they expand the Bolita to all of the Gulf Coast. Traficante starts to rake in the cash at this point. Then in 1914, Luigi Santo Traficante is born. He's the second of five sons. They nickname him Santo Jr., and he's brought around with Santo Sr. to various restaurants and events. Seemingly, he saw something in, in this son that he didn't see in his other sons about entering, you know, this thing of ours. So when Santo Jr. starts to inquire about Sr.'s business activities, 
dad brings him right along into the family business. And that's just, that's just good parenting. You know, if your child shows an interest in something and you support him in pursuing that interest, you're going to want to get him started on it young, unless that interest is of course podcasting. So don't let that happen to, to your kids. Yeah. If my son even looks at a magazine, I'm going to rip it up and enroll him on an engineering course in fucking Papua New Guinea. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to the Sopranos reference here because it's coming, isn't it? We already made like a bunch of them, dude. Oh God. See, I'm not even up on it. God, it's so useless. Yeah, you're, you're carrying that, that tropical deliriousness right now. How's, uh, you got food poisoning yet? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have to run like to the bathroom in about 15 minutes, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the early 1930s, Traficante Sr. is invited to represent the Tampa mob at a high-level mob meeting at Atlantic City. And if you haven't seen Borak Empire, I think it goes into this a bit, but uh, it rules. Great show. I don't think we've recommended it enough. But this is the time when the mafia is starting to be restructured in New York and nationwide. A lot of you probably know this history, but this is when like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, Bugsy Siegel, some of the other notable future mob powerhouses they get rid of by killing off the old school Italian mustache Pete bosses who had come over from the old country and did things sort of the old way. And the thinking was that there was enough of this inter-mafia feuding, they needed to organize the underworld as a business. Less killing, more peaceful coexistence and working together, which is, you know, very progressive. And they formed the Commission and the Five Families in New York. Again, you know, this is kind of a, a well-tread path, but the heads of the Five Families, they sit on the Commission, and they're almost like a board of directors slash governing body of the mob, there's also some other national mob bosses from around the country that are on it as well. You know, people are here to hear you, you tell the stories, mate. Not some trucker hat wearing comedian from Brent's. They want you. I, I see. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm over like five with your references today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know who's a trucker wearing uh, a trucker hat wearing comedian from Branson, But I guess I just want to go to Branson. I've always wanted to go. Is it good? Why well, you have just like this uh, this thing with like weird cities and locations in america like i don't think anyone else i know has spent time in oklahoma that's not from <laughs> oklahoma yeah i mean that's my entire career just going to places that no one else wants to go to so that's why i'm sitting in a hotel room uh struggling to not to run off to the bathroom did i mention i've got food poisoning I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway the uh the commission wants one point of contact not only for the entire state of florida but also for cuba because they're looking to get uh, set up shop there. They want to invest pretty heavily in narcotics down there. I think they already were by that point. But their one problem was that none of them spoke Spanish. So Santos Sr., since he spent most of his childhood in Florida, he did speak Spanish, which is, you know, why everyone should learn a second language. You never know when it will help you in your career. Yeah, just learn Spanish, basically. Don't bother with the other ones. So he also speaks Italian and English, of course, which makes him the perfect go-between for New York mobsters since back then. You know, not only did they not speak Spanish, some of them barely spoke English. But this, this sort of these dealings with the New York mob guys and him getting in good with them, it really helps grow his power and influence in the national mafia landscape because they were so powerful. They just had this outsized influence. In 1930, Santo Jr. drops out of high school at age 15 with the blessing of his father, who tells him that he isn't going to learn any more in high school and that he can learn more from hanging around him, which is kind of you know, Sonny from the Bronx begs to differ, but Junior starts tagging along with him to meetings in New York, getting to know high-level figures in the underworld and really growing up at the highest level of the game, which is going to serve him really well in the future and kind of is part of what makes him such a talented, I don't know if that, that's the right word, but like successful mobster as he gets older. He's a really smart guy, 
really ambitious, known for not taking no for an answer, like very persevered, you know? One of his father's friends that takes Santo Jr. kind of under his wing and becomes his mentor is Tommy Lucchese. Lucchese is a key player in the Luciano Lansky Costello sort of takeover the mafia. Later, he becomes the underboss of the Gagliano family, which is one of the new five New York families created by the commission. That boss is extremely low-key, uh, Tommy Gagliano. He's extremely under the radar too, so under the radar that he basically gives all his orders through Lucchese, who is not just the underboss, but the de facto street boss. And he eventually takes over that family in 1951. Uh, and it's renamed Lucchese Crime Family, which it's still called today. I don't know about like much beyond this show, basically. Are these guys still popping it in New York, or have they kind of had their wings clipped these yeah, days? Yeah, I mean, look, they're not nowhere near where they were decades ago, but they're still around. Like They still function. They still have bosses. I think there was just a big bust on the Gambino's family like a month ago. Uh, oh. But yeah, no, they're still still the same name, still around, um, still you know doing their thing, I guess. They must be still getting some stuff done, but I'm, you know... It's like uh, the business is definitely not as good as it was 60, 70 years ago. Lucchese's closest ally is fellow mob boss and boss of all bosses at the time, Carlo Gambino, who is head of the Gambino crime family. Uh, They're so close, in fact, that Lucchese's daughter marries Gambino's son, Tommy. These two form an alliance to basically dominate the commission and the underworlds. It's a little bit far in the future, but the point being is he's a good guy for Santo Jr. to have as a mentor. Lucchese and Santo uh, Traficante Sr., they also have a narcotics business together that continues when Junior takes the reins, which is going to happen shortly. Another reason Traficante Sr. is sending his son up to New York all the time to spend time with these guys is that there's a mob war going on between Traficante's boss, Ignacio Antonore, who is now one of the biggest drug traffickers in the country, and a rival mobster named Charlie Wall in Tampa, who is, I think, not Italian. No, but, uh, Charlie his Wall? Family, yeah, I think, no, definitely not. But his family was super powerful legitimately in Tampa. I think his dad had been the mayor and his mom was the daughter of a different mayor. So, you know, I I feel like it's one of those old school Southern things back then where like, you know, they weren't technically mafiosos, but they basically were powerful politicians who had the run of the place. The gang war, it's ongoing. It ends up lasting much of the 30s. Uh, Traficante Sr., he kind of lays low and stays out of the fray, hoping to gain more power by the end of it. His boss is gunned down in 1940. And Wall is severely weakened, but he wins, but he loses so many of his men in the war that Tropicante Sr. is able to slide right in, become the new boss of Tampa, and basically take over all the gambling rackets. Then in 1946, there's this historic conference of national mafia leaders in Havana. The backdrop to this conference is that in the 1930s, Lucky Luciano was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison. World War II starts, and by 1942, the U.S. military is concerned about Italian and German agents infiltrating the U.S. through the ports and conducting sabotage against the military at the waterfront. So U.S. military intelligence, knowing the mob controls the waterfront, they approach Lansky as a conduit to Luciano to make a deal. And they'll let him out of jail and deport him in exchange for the mob guys, basically protecting the waterfront from sabotage. The mob guys agree. They're all on America's side anyway in the war, which is interesting. Yeah, I've been researching a like crazy American guy who lived out in the Golden Triangle. He's going to pop up in next week's show, actually, as well. But this Hungarian, his Hungarian family was basically blacklisted after Pearl Harbor. Apparently, there was a massive witch hunt for foreign collaborators right after that. So it led a lot of dual national Americans towards crime. It's like really interesting stuff. So I guess these guys, like, they must have been the other side of the coin. I don't know, pledging allegiance and getting all kinds of benefits. So I guess it worked both ways. Yeah, I mean, even though they were Italian or of Italian origin, they did not like... Mussolini or the Nazis and they were you know they were patriots in that way in terms of like uh 
trying to help with the, uh, with the war effort. This conference, which is co-hosted by Luciano Alansky, it's supposed to welcome Luciano back into the fold and settle a bunch of mob disputes and feuding that have been going on. Junior, he's there actually representing the Tampa Bay Mafia and his dad. The Traficantes now have a seat at the most powerful mob boss table out there. And also, side note, Frank Sinatra was the entertainment down there in Havana. Then in 1950, we get the Senate commissions that start looking into organized crime, especially involving the labor rackets. I think we've talked about those a lot on the show before. Both Santos Sr. and Jr. are subpoenaed to appear before the commission, which estimates that they receive at that point $50 million a year in illegal gambling alone. Charlie Wall, who we mentioned earlier, the guy who got into the gang war with Traficante's old boss, he testifies about the organized crime situation in Tampa, and it becomes pretty clear to everyone that the Traficantes are major players, which obviously is going to increase the heat on them from law enforcement. So Jr. and Sr. decide it's probably best to duck out of the States for a bit and head to Cuba. Cuba is like popping back then, right? The casino scene, the nightlife, Havana in the 1950s, every bar looks like the Hotel Del Mano, which I don't know, man. I've always thought it actually sounded like a really fun place to be uh, at the time, as long as you were, were not uh, standing against Batista, but were <laughs> in with Italian mob guys. Just, you know, just, just a good time. So celebs like, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, they're going down there to perform and to party. Uh, for years, Santos Sr. has been funneling mob money to Batista to keep the local authorities away from their big narcotics trade. Uh, so they're super well connected and kind of free to do what they want. Yeah, wasn't that one of the biggest things that pissed off Castro as well, that Cuba was suddenly overrun by all these flashy Americans and mobsters? I mean, I guess if he just liked big band tunes instead of whatever he liked, the whole world could have been a lot different. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't think he was a fan of them or luxury hotels at the time, but I'm not sure. Was he there? Or was he already in the in like in, in rural areas fighting when that really became a thing? I actually, I, I don't know. But yeah, that I'm pretty is, sure uh, he was. Did you read that somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Santo Sr., who was already in poor health, gets diagnosed with, uh, with stomach cancer and basically is on the way out. He starts handing over the reins to Santo Jr., you know, who's obviously been training for this day since he was a kid. And the Traficantes are then making their move back to Tampa because the heat has died down. Santo Jr., he's like a very well-read guy. He has nerdy glasses. He's well-groomed. He isn't like a, you know, uh, this is something that a, a FBI guy said to me once. He's not a D's, Dem, and Doe's type of gangster. You know, he's, he's kind of a class act. So he's not a thug. He's very low key. He's even described as kind by some people. Um, and he's very respected, not only by other mafia figures, but also by legitimate businessmen who recognize that he's sharp as hell. And it kind of makes sense. You know, other mafia guys rise to the ranks by being on the street. When he was in his youth, he's already attending high level meetings with his dad or in New York shattering other high level guys, like a very solid mafia internship. And just a real princeling who was groomed for leadership since he was a teenager. Kind of like, uh, I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of um, YouTube mafia sensation Michael Franzisi with the, uh, you know, the gas tax. <laughs> I mean, is our pod- podcast the only one that he's not been on? I-, I feel like he's been on every single podcast in the world. And like, I think there was a time when my YouTube algorithm was half, I would say, like Michael Franzisi videos. But um, yeah, go him. Well people, done. People, I mean, he really lived a life. So people like his shtick and he's... uh. He's a content creator, man. Like you got to give him credit. I, he does like movie reviews of mafia movies of what's real. Like he really knows how to. Yeah, I love it. I think you know, good for. I, I mean, I I can't watch it, but good for him. He's making money. So now the Traficante family, they've always been a lot smarter than some of the other powerful families. Like they didn't really have that many members. Whereas the big five families in New York, they had hundreds of made members and thousands of associates. 
The Traficantes, they operated a bit differently. A lot of mobsters wanted to do business in South Florida, and they would need to either pay the Traficantes tribute or need to go into business with them. So they had this big national backing, so they got a piece of most of the pies that happened in South Florida, which was kind of a booming industry at the time. They didn't completely control the area like the Chicago outfit controlled Chicago. It was just like this different sort of power. But again, you did not want to cross them. Junior gets back to Tampa. He's pretty much the boss of the Traficante family at this point. There's another mobster, though, by the name of Jimmy Lumia, who had taken over some of the rackets when they were gone. And one of Junior's first moves is killing him and seizing total control of the South Florida underworld and Tampa. Takes him out. He hunts down the remaining mobsters in that faction. He kills them one by one. The cops basically know it's him at this point, but the hits are really professionally done. uh, And they just can't hang a charge on anyone. So in 1953, there's this attempt to actually take out Santo Junior. While he's in his car, they pull up alongside him and fire a bunch of shots, but he survives with just a graze, and it actually turns out to be his dad's old rival, the washed-up Charlie Wall, who gets murdered a few months later. But at this point, like the Traficante family is just completely in charge of the whole state. Santo Sr. dies in 1954. He has a very low-key funeral in typical Traficante fashion. Junior is now officially the new boss of Florida, and the transition is pretty smooth because, as we mentioned, he had... He was well-respected, well-liked by the Commission of National Mob Leaders, and uh, even his own crime family really liked him and respected him despite the fact that he was, for all intents and purposes, a Nepo baby. So, 1958, he returns to Havana and discovers it's not the same place that he left. Everyone is on the edge, and the rebels have been making huge gains. And by that point, the mafia owns most, if not all, of the casinos in Havana, and they've been paying off uh, Batista for a while with that, too. They're raking in an estimated $100 million a year. Uh, I actually busted out the inflation calculator for this one, and it's over a billion dollars in today's terms. So they're doing, they're doing quite well, uh, even though you know they have partners with other mafia bosses across the US in those casinos. They also control prostitution, you know, other vices that went along with the casinos, drugs, loan sharking, everything. And several mobsters like Meyer Lansky uh, own hotels down there too with them. So there's a lot at stake with this revolution that's happening. And Junior, as the mob's point man in Cuba, is responsible. Yeah, I feel like this is a pretty easy sell for the commies, though. Like, I mean, this is pretty easy stuff for Castro just to point and wave his finger at. I mean, I don't know. I, I prefer hanging out in casinos and luxury hotels, but I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm just a maybe I'm just a patriotic American, Sean. Unlike you, but yeah, I think um, yeah, that was I think definitely point part of of Castro's, you know rise to power right he was pointing at Stick. all the uh <laughs> all the all the all the rich people that were exploiting cuba and what was going on there here's what traficante says of the day castro took over uh this is from the website of a movie that's actually being pitched about traficante and it doesn't say where they got the quote from but here we go quote well even before fidel reached havana because he didn't come down from the mountains until after batista had left and he had a walkathon you could call it from the mountains to Havana, and they kept interviewing him, and he kept saying the casinos would close, statements to that effect. The casinos closed without even being noted, notified officially to close. Everything was in turmoil. There were people all over the streets breaking into homes. There was complete enmity, and the only thing at that time was to try and stay alive. I mean, the, mo- the woke mob just walking and cycling everywhere. God, buy a six-wheeler, libtards. Yeah, you're swinging and missing today, man. You, you were getting funnier for a long time, but I just feel like <laughs> something about that... that- tropical weather and that food poisoning is this really uh yeah i mean i've been sitting with no one but myself for company can you imagine how awful that is yeah i mean i was encouraging you i think to to start with your stand-up career sometime with the last six months but now i feel nah, like i'm gonna no, no i'm no. gonna downgrade that to uh to no encouragement I actually <laughs> encourage you to not 
not make jokes anymore. We get to uh, 1959. <laughs> Batista's out. Castro is in control of Cuba. Castro, though, being a commie, he does not play ball with the mobsters and starts closing down their casinos and some of their hotels. Junior, though, he still thinks he has a shot, but those fantasies come to an end when he's arrested in Havana on unknown charges two weeks before his daughter's wedding is supposed to take place in the city. This arrest happens when Castro and his men were executing hundreds of people by firing squad, and so the news kind of sends shockwaves throughout the underworld, and no one really knows what uh, Junior's fate is going to be. His wife, Josephine, though, is from a very politically well-connected family in Florida, and they somehow get the Cuban authorities to let him out on a furlough to attend the wedding. But right when the wedding is over, he's sent back to jail, and unlike Johnny Sack, he did not cry like a woman. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I got that one. All right, that's my first yeah. one. And the Traficante crime family, their estimation of Santo as a man does not plummet, but Santo Jr.'s lawyer eventually gets through to the new Cuban government, and he's deported back to Tampa. They let him live. The legend of Santo Traficante Jr. usually says that he never spent a day in jail, but what they mean is that he never spent a day in jail in the U.S. He did actually spend, I think, a couple months, if not a couple weeks, in Cuba. So the mob as a whole and Jr., they take a massive financial hit with the shutting down of their cash cow in Cuba. You know, fave mobster Meyer Lancy actually said that Cuba financially ruined him, though I think he ended up doing pretty okay. Junior loses casinos and hotels, but unlike the Lanskys in the underworld, he's continually taking money out of Cuba when business was good. You know, the guy was sharp, unlike, say, you know, if you had some money in crypto that was skyrocketing and you just kind of let it sit there thinking the number only goes up, but it doesn't, Sean. The number also goes down a lot. So take profit, Sean. Take profit. Look, I'm just, I'm uh, going to keep holding my hex, all right? Yeah. But anyway, Traficante, he's not hurt as badly as the others. Over the next few years, instead of rushing to Vegas like some of the other mobsters, he instead scouts other locations in South America and the Caribbean. He's got people in the Bahamas, Ecuador, Venezuela, and other locales. He also spends a lot of time setting stuff up in Miami, just running things there, getting the bolita and the nightlife spots happening. Says that that movie website again, Traficante used his political connections to smooth over immigration issues and zoning regulations and helped wise guys cut through the red tape of state regulatory bureaucracies to obtain liquor and other licenses. All right. Yeah, he's such as helping out small businesses. Right, exactly. The corruptible law enforcement political element was as present in Miami as it was in Tampa. The Miami Police Department was riddled with corruption in the 50s and 60s. Miami was wide open. And Traficante had placed himself in a strategic position to gain the best advantage from the situation. He called the shots and pulled all the strings in Boldito. So yeah, the 60s is also when the CIA stuff and the assassinations... All that stuff starts to happen. And just a note from before, Traficante was part of the conspiracy theory of assassinating JFK with, with Carlos Marcello that we discussed in the Marcello episode at length from a few back. So if you're interested in the JFK stuff, go back and listen to that. But let's talk about the Castro plots now, which, you know, it's always an interesting thing. Like sometimes you hear the more outlandish, like silly shit with situations like this. And I'm kind of like, you know, were steps actually taken or did the office sort of wackadoo shout out some suggestion like we should train possums <laughs> to carry knives and attack him at night? And everyone's like, yeah, okay, Carl, great idea, but no one does anything. But I think in this specific case, there actually were some steps taken. It's, it's legit. Yeah, I mean, I want to go out with Carl. He sounds like a who. Yeah, you know, there's always one guy like that. So the reporting we're using here for the CIA mafia team, uh, it actually came up again in a recent political magazine piece. But in the mid-70s, the CIA mafia plot became known to the general public through some Senate committee hearings. But it isn't until 2007 that the CIA admitted that the director at the time offered the mobsters a bounty. That document was released in 2007 with a bunch of others because the CIA was under pressure during the Bush presidency for war on, war on terror stuff. And the document declassification dump 
is called The Family Jewels, and it's about about CIA wrongdoings between 1959 and 1973. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot there, and it's a time-honored American tradition that if you are president under some scrutiny, you release old CIA stuff to distract the public. And this <laughs> brings us to the 2018 Political Magazine article. Uh, after more documents come out in a bunch of um, stuff that Trump releases about the Kennedy assassination and we get the full picture. So unlike the JFK stuff, this isn't a conspiracy theory. Like it's just an actual thing that the CIA and the mafia were trying to get up to. The plan to get rid of Castro was originally initiated under President Eisenhower, but was embraced by JFK when he took office as well. It's unclear how much either president knew about the, the, like the details, the specifics, but they both really wanted Castro gone. The released classified files call for, quote, a sensitive mission requiring gangster type action, which is, uh, I don't know, just a cool way of describing everything, right? Yeah. Because the CIA was reluctant to get any blood on its hands, which, um, you know, that's why they use these guys. Doesn't really make any sense, though, if you think about what the CIA and the U.S. did, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but whatever. They definitely got blood on their hands. It also doesn't make sense to hire mobsters either because they do mob hits, right? They're not sophisticated political assassinations of foreign heads of state abroad, but nevertheless, the CIA thought this was a good idea. Uh, yeah, they were like gagging for this stuff. It was all wrapped up under this project called JM Wave, and it was actually a blueprint for a bunch of stuff the agency winds up doing in Laos and Vietnam. They even had their own James Bond Q character, this like meatpacking fortune air, just like show up proposing wacky ways to get Castro high or embarrass him or kill him. And that's when you've got your, your possums with knives or your exploding cigars, poison salt shakers, LSD vaporizers. I mean, this is like a pretty wild time. And Bobby Kennedy, he's like the most hawkish of a lot of them, actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, some of the stuff he was proposing was insane. Wait, so did the exploding cigars and poison salt shakers and LSD stuff, did that actually go further than like uh, notes in a meeting? Like, were there any logistics put in place for that? Yeah, they actually... Uh, so the first time they did it, it was a, a cigar that you'd smoke and you'd just get like a hallucinogen or something. And then this guy came along, I can't remember his name, the meatpacking fortunaire, and he was like, no, 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 I'm going to make like a mini detonator. They were just, um, I don't know, they were kind of kooky, but they did definitely do that stuff. Wasn't there one where they're going to try to make his beard fall out to like, to, yes. to like, you know, ruin his virility as a man, which as someone who's had part of my beard fall out, it, it's... It would have had a negative effect on him, I'm sure. <laughs> so there's other mobsters involved in this plot. The first is Sam Giancana, who, who's the Chicago outfit boss who had casino interests in Cuba and is one of the most powerful mob bosses in the country. And the other is John Roselli, a.k.a. Handsome Johnny, which I mean, it's the ideal nickname for a mobster for anyone. He was a member of the Chicago outfit. He was the mob's man in Hollywood for a while, and then he shifted focus to be the mob's man in Vegas. Uh, after they increased their investment there when Castro gave them the boot and they wanted to get casinos up and running. Roselli and Giancana, they're pals, and they often go out together and party, and both are friends of Traficante Jr. You know, we talked about this in the Corporation episode as well, but there's a lot of just wild stuff happening with Cuban exiles in the 60s, and I guess later on too, especially in Miami. Anti-Castro plots, like violent groups forming, some terrorist, organized crime training, uh, commando-type stuff, just all sorts of political... Uh, and violent intrigue that was just a, a wild time in America. The CIA recruits a guy by the name of Robert, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Maho. You know, it's the, when, when they hit you with the, like, the EU. Yeah. Maho? Yeah, that's, that's pretty know. much. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with it. That's good. He's an ex-FBI agent and current aide to eventual crazy person and legendary entrepreneur Howard Hughes. Uh, he becomes the go-between, and Robert approaches Roselli, who then introduces the man to Traficante and Giancana, 
And the CIA offers them $150,000 to kill Castro, which is like a lot of money. I feel like that that's a good going rate for killing a head of state, uh, which the mobsters decline. They say they'll actually do it for free and they cite patriotic reasons for wanting to help out the government. But in reality, you know, they're just kind of doing this because they want their vastly profitable Cuban casinos and hotels back. And they also believe that if they do this very risky thing for the government, that it kind of helps them get a get out of jail free card for their own future legal troubles. And the relationship with the spies, it comes in handy right off the bat later in 1961 when these two CIA operatives are caught by the FBI illegally bugging the hotel room of a Giancana rival who's involved in some sort of love triangle with a famous, uh, famous actress, wow. I think, or singer. And the CIA does this as a favor to their new pal Giancana. But when the FBI wants to press charges, the CIA brings the matter to Attorney General RFK, who's no fan of the mafia, and he's kind of annoyed by it. So they agree to drop the charges to the casino so the casino operation can go in, but they tell the CIA to warn him in advance, quote, if you ever try to do business with organized crime again. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, RFK was like, like I said, the most hawkish guy, and he actually favored something he called boom-bang action against Cuba. And like, bearing in mind that this time the Soviets are planting missiles on the island, that's that's going to be a sure way to trigger a nuclear holocaust. But uh yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I reckon he tried to like airbrush a lot of stuff that he'd done after that. But uh, I guess he he didn't last a huge amount longer, did he? Bobby Kennedy, he got he got off like soon after this, or was it a bit later on? No, you're thinking of no, much later on. His brother gets off. He gets he gets killed in the in the late seventies, not in the early seventies. Ah, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, late sixties, not in the early sixties. But I think that um, I think that uh, you know, part of it is probably that he just doesn't. He hates you know, the mafia. He's at war with the mafia. Yeah, so yeah. while he probably um, favors uh, you know direct action, he probably just doesn't want it done by mafia guys. I'm sure he had w- no problem operating with like you know the other sort of Cuban uh, weird special operatives that they used. But yeah. the first attempt with these mobsters is when they give a would-be assassin poison pills that the CIA gave them that put in Castro's feud in Havana. This would-be assassin is a guy by the name of Juan Orta, who is Director General of the Office of the Prime Minister of Fidel Castro, I think a little before that, but he gets cold feet, doesn't get the job done. But there's you know, some disputes that Orta would have even been able to get close to Castro to poison him. And it's Castro who actually says this. This is from a Reuters article in 2007. In his own words, the traitor Orta received money from organized crime supposedly to help them reopen casinos. He had nothing to do with the matter. By the time they gave him the poison, unlike the earlier moments, there was little chance Orta would see me as by then I was completely occupied with other matters. So Fidel basically says like, cold feet or not, this guy wouldn't have even touched me. And there's a bunch of other plots, uh, including trying to get the CIA to give money and weapons to a Cuban exile leader named Tony Verona. The mobsters don't actually get a lot done and not much comes to fruition, though they definitely put in some effort. And Traficante kind of gets out of the assassination business pretty quickly, though, Giancana and Roselli stay involved. Interestingly enough, uh, Giancana actually tries another plot himself and Roselli becomes so personally invested that he participates in like boat raids in 62 and, uh, and 63. Uh, one raid had Giancana so worried about him that he thought he was actually killed or captured because he was gone for so long. And then in 63, JFK is killed and the Castro assassination plots are basically shelved. Yeah, I did not know until today that Roselli was like a big player in the mafia. Like he was definitely the agency's point man for a while. And this sabotage campaign that he like personally went on, it was one of the CIA's most successful against Castro. 
Like a couple agents put thousands of dollars worth of weapons in a U-Haul in Miami. They were all over Miami. It was insane. And they gave him the key. Next minute, they got teams bombing train lines, factories. They even sunk a Soviet ship, I think, moored off of Havana. It was pretty daring stuff. So, yeah, I'm going to get into some more of this stuff uh, next week. But it racked up costs of like 50 mil, I think, at the time, which is... I don't know how many bazillions uh, in today's money, like for a year for one op, which is pretty crazy back then. So uh, this was really like the how all future stuff would be done for the CIA for a long time. Some of the initial reporting and rumors of these Castro plots, it comes after the Senate Church Committee in 1975, which was this committee to investigate abuses by the CIA, NSA, FBI, and the IRS. So shortly before Giancana is scheduled to testify before these hearings, he's killed in his home. One theory is, of course, the CIA took him out before he could talk. But another theory is that uh, Junior actually ordered the hit to prevent him from talking. But they also say a decade earlier, Giancana was sentenced to one year in jail for contempt in 1965 for refusing to testify at an unrelated grand jury. And during that sentence, he was demoted from boss by the real longtime power, you know, power boss of the Chicago outfit, Tony Accardo and, and, and Paul, Paul Ricca, I think is how you say his last name, who were the real guys basically running Chicago for 40 years. And the only reason Giancana got the official title as boss in the first place was because Ricardo thought he was getting too much heat from the IRS in the 50s and had him be boss. But Giancana's boss, he's very flashy, hangs out in nightclubs, he's in these like weird love triangles, all sorts of nonsense. So after his jail sentence is up, he flees to Mexico in 66 to supposedly avoid more grand jury testimony, but probably because the mafia exiled him and Mexican authorities arrest and deport him back to the U.S. in the summer of 74. Once he's back in the States, he starts kind of talking and running his mouth about getting back in the action and wanting his cut of the pie. And an unnamed mafia source in the New York Times said that Sam wanted to reassert his authority after 10 years, but everything had changed. So while CIA hit of the traffic or a traffic conta hit would have worked out better for this episode, I actually think it seems pretty clear that the outfit were the ones to take him out. Handsome Johnny Roselli does testify at the church committee and according to a 1975 New York Times article too, tells the committee he was recruited by the CIA to assassinate Castro. The article said he appeared to the committee under heavy protection and then he testifies at a 1976 Kennedy assassination committee in April of that year and is scheduled to testify again three months later, but he's reported missing as of July 28, 1976. His body is found in an oil drum floating near Miami a few weeks later. And, you know, here we go again from a New York Times article in 1977, quote, there was no shortage of suspects ranging from the CIA to Cuban agents and the mafia itself. Yeah, I think he was one of like 18 people who died mysteriously either just before or just after they were going to testify at one of these things. So uh, I'm not saying aliens did it. I'm just saying these are these are facts. Yeah, the article goes on to say that mafia leaders were upset with Roselli dating back to his testimony in 71 through another mafia related trial. Uh, and three guys went to jail because of that. And the mafia basically started thinking that Roselli was talking to the feds. And it further says that Roselli's murder was approved by the commission shortly after he testified in the Senate committee in 1975, but that it was ultimately the Chicago outfit's call. Uh, and a different source, not in the times has an informant quoting Tony Accardo. Who we mentioned right before as saying Roselli was becoming a public source of embarrassment to La Cosa Nostra. Authorities believe it was a member of the Traficante organization who was able to lure Mr. Roselli to his death. So Traficante actually testified at some of these Senate committees in the 70s about the JFK assassination and other ones. But other than that, he then leads a pretty low-key life as a mob boss and just kind of runs things just smoothly. You know, like I said, he kept the violence out, uh, 
and was smart about how he did things and made a lot of money. In 1983, though, he's indicted on charges that stem from a $2 million FBI sting operation conducted between 1979 and 81. This is from a 1983 Washington Post article, quote, the charges are the result of an FBI sting operation in which agents worked undercover for three years, operating a plush, lucrative club to draw in the underworld figures, said Robert W. Butler, in charge of the Tampa FBI office. He, along with 11 other mobsters from the Bonanno, Gambino, and Lucchese families, are indicted on conspiracy and racketeering charges. Quote, the indictment alleged that for a percentage of the profits, Traficante would allow top nationwide crime families to engage in unlawful activities such as bookmaking, gambling, and control of sanitation business on the west coast of the state. You know, as I mentioned earlier, he didn't have that big of a family, but he would cut deals with other families to allow them to operate in his territory for a taste of the profits. And this indictment is actually about the King's Court Bottle Club, which is portrayed in the movie Donnie Brasco, which is based, of course, on the undercover exploits of FBI agent Joe Pistone, who I actually interviewed uh, this year for a different project that I'm working on that will be out next year. All right. What's he like? Uh, you know, <laughs> straight shooter. Okay. I guess. You know, had a lot to say. Uh, yeah. I think he has a podcast of his own, but, um, you know, anyway, I think in the movie, it makes it seem more like they got in trouble because they failed to pay off the local cops. But clearly this was a much more sophisticated FBI operation. Santo is 69 at the time, which nice. He gets out on $50,000 bail and his lawyer continued delays the trial, citing his old age and health issues. He actually goes on to win the case because his lawyer argues that it is built mostly on hearsay evidence from uh, Dominic Sonny Black Napolitano, who was unable to testify, even if he was willing to do so because he's killed in 1981 for introducing Donnie Brasco to the Bonanno family. The judge agrees with Santos' lawyer, says the evidence is too weak, gets out on a mistrial in 86, pisses off the government because they spent a lot of money on it, and he gets removed from another trial the following year for his poor health, which actually ends up making sense because he dies in March of 1987 because of health complications that year. Um, so I guess, yeah, all in all, a pretty good mafia career for the Santo Sr. and Santo Jr. Traficante family because they never did a day in American jail. They both die of natural causes when they're pretty old. Um, Santo Jr. has two daughters who never really get involved with organized crime but still have a ton of money. And the family gets out, you know, a whole lot of money and not so much in the dire consequences department. So maybe crime does pay. Yeah, crime definitely pays. And speaking of which, I'm off to buy a kilo of Bougainvillian gold on the black market. Only joking, I'm actually going to run to the bathroom because I'm still sick. So, uh, yeah, cheers for that. Love how you kept bringing that up for the uh, for the audience. I'm sure they were... I just want to, to give a vivid image. Yeah. Think about that. But anyway, yeah, next week, patreon.com, Underworld Podcast. Uh, yeah, take care. <laughs>